This episode was recorded in 2021. From Luminary and Vilted Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, Mark King, former Adidas North American president and current CEO of Taco Bell. Well, everyone thought we were nuts because we weren't going to be able to make margin and we were obsoleting ourselves. And what I learned about industries is that industries have an infrastructure, they have a mindset, they're run by industry vets. And when you change the status quo, you can have quantum leaps in performance, not in years, in literally months. How Mark King took what he learned shaking up the sports industry and applied it to the world of fast food. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. People often ask me the difference between a founder and a CEO. As many of you know, on my other podcast, How I Built This, I interview founders. And to be clear, sometimes those founders are also the CEO. But the two roles are very different, even when done by the same person. A founder, especially early in the life cycle of a startup, is playing whack-a-mole and improvising, seeing what works and what doesn't. A founder has to be able to thrive in a somewhat chaotic environment. But a manager, an effective CEO, creates structure and systems and a clear-eyed vision with a measurable plan for how to achieve that vision. And if I'm being perfectly honest, even though both of these roles are really important to a business, the job of a manager is usually harder. And managers don't often get the glory that founders do, even though many companies rise and fall based on who is leading it. A good leader can mean the difference between bankruptcy and sustainability. Good leaders have a superpower to attract great people to work for them. And these qualities are probably why Mark King was coaxed out of retirement to run Taco Bell back in 2019. At the time, he had already tripled sales as head of Adidas North America, and before that, turned tailor-made golf company into a multi-billion dollar enterprise. And as you will hear, he was ready to call it a day. But the lure of one more challenge in an industry he knew nothing about was too hard to pass up. Mark took the reins at Taco Bell just a few months before the pandemic shut down much of the global economy. His industry, fast food, 
was expected to crater. Yet under Mark's leadership, Taco Bell's revenue grew 20% in 2020 alone. And much of that had to do with the decisions his leadership team took. But we'll get there. Mark's story is actually a story of how he learned to become a leader. He never intended to become a corporate CEO. In fact, his dream was to become a professional golfer, a game he started playing as a kid in his hometown of Green Bay, Wisconsin. My dad was a high school teacher, and when I was 10, he worked, uh, because all the high school teachers back then at least had summer jobs, and he worked at this little nine-hole golf course in Green Bay, Village Greens, and my mom was a golfer, (laughs) and so we went out every day. She'd play nine holes, and then I'd play the rest of the day. I'd just go round and round and round, and just fell in love with golf at a very young age, 10 years old. Wow. And did your mom work, or did she look after the kids, or...? She was a piano teacher, wow. so she we had a piano in our house. She loved to play the piano, and all the neighborhood kids came and took lessons. So she taught piano Monday through Thursday from 3 till 5, and then we had uh, dinner from 5 to 5.30, and then she taught from 5.30 to 7. She did it every night, <laughs> Monday through Thursday, so... I think she did that just to uh, buy her cigarettes because my dad wouldn't give her any money for the cigarettes. So she taught piano to fund her Her bad habit. Gotcha. Yes. Um, So I read a story that when you were 16, you went into a golf store in Green Bay and you were asking about a set of golf clubs that you wanted, but you couldn't afford. Um, And the owner essentially said, hey, I'll give them to you if you work for me in the store. Well, Mm -hmm. is that is that true? Yeah, it's very true. Uh, It was Langert's Golf Center, Mm -hmm. and we didn't have much money because uh, I think the most my dad ever made was $30,000, and we had four kids, so we didn't have a lot of money. Um, So I just went out and wanted to make a deal with Mr. Langert, and um, he said, well, I'll I'll give you the clubs, but you got to come work for me. So I was able to get my my Wilson 1200s was the name of the club back then. And, uh, and my business career guy was born. All right, we're going to get there. Um, but meantime, you go to college, and I think you got a golf scholarship, right? I did. Yep. I was I was one of the, the better junior golfers in Wisconsin. Wow. And a couple of uh, guys that went to the same high school, Green Bay West, went to Northern Illinois University. And at the time, it was a top 25 program in college golf. So it was really quite a an honor to be to get a scholarship to go there that was 1977 so i spent two years there uh did not play very well (laughs) and mr langert then said why don't you come back to green bay you can work for me full time and go to the university in green bay so then i did that which was still a division one school played golf at uh, university of wisconsin green bay where i finished my college so you went back there and you continued to work at the at the golf store correct yep all right, so you graduate, and what did you what did you do? Well, I wanted to be a, a golf professional. That's what I went to college to be. You thought you would be a golf pro at a club or something? Well, I initially thought maybe I'd be good enough to be a tour player. But oh, I, oh, tour player, okay. Yeah, that's what I wanted to be. But honestly, after a couple of years, I figured that that wasn't, I wasn't going to be good enough. So then I was going to finish college and be a club professional. Hmm. 
But the best thing that ever happened to me is Eddie Langert's best friend is a man named Gary Adams. And he was a territory sales rep for another golf company. And he quit his job and was the founder of the TaylorMade Golf Company. <laughs> he then, this Gary Adams, asked Eddie Langert to come on and be his sales manager. So during my senior year of college, Eddie Langert shuts down his golf shop and moves to McHenry, Illinois, become the national sales manager for TaylorMade Golf. Wow. And when I finish college, six months later, he offered me a job to be a sales rep for the TaylorMade Golf Company, which was in its first year of business. It was a first year business. So it was a tiny startup. Yeah, it was a very, very tiny startup. The The total revenue for the, the company my first year was less than a million dollars. So what a great, I mean, just all the stars aligned because you'd worked for this guy, Eddie Langer. He was then recruited to, to oversee all the sales first tailor-made and he's like oh i know the perfect guy mark i'm gonna call mark this kid out of college and and yep. and he calls you and he says hey you want a sales job and you were like yeah sure i don't have anything else to do that's what happened that's what happened <laughs> and i remember sitting in my kitchen with my mom and dad and i said so i'm moving to they we only had four or five sales reps at the time so they said you could pick whatever territory you wanted so i said well i'll go to southern california and my dad said to me, which obviously you can see a high school teacher, very conservative, how much are you going to get paid? And I said, well, dad, it's this amazing thing called commission. <laughs> and every time you sell something, you get 10% of the sale. And he said, well, how much does that territory do today? And I said, well, it does zero. He goes, well, I'm not a math teacher, <laughs> but I do know that 10% of nothing is nothing. So he was not that excited about me heading out to California, but I did. And, and you're representing a no-name company, essentially, right? I mean, nobody, presumably no Correct. one really knows Taylor. And, and they make, what, they, what were they making, golf clubs and what else? They were making golf clubs, but it was an, it was an interesting opportunity because up until 1981, or actually 1980, all of the, the woods that were made. So in golf clubs, you have a putter, you have irons, and you have woods. Right. Well, the woods were made of wood. Uh, it was either a laminated wood with layers of, of wood, or it was a piece of persimmon that was carved into the, the shape of a, what you would think of as a driver or a fairway wood. The TaylorMade Golf Company was founded on a new technology that was investment cast stainless steel, which was a hollow shell that was shaped just like a wood, but it was made of 431 stainless steel, and it revolutionized the golf industry. Revolutionized. It was, it was easier to make. It was cheaper to make. It didn't absorb water. It didn't crack. It was really easy to move the weight around. So all these properties that would make a golf club more playable was really the innovation of the TaylorMade Golf Company. Hmm. And the thing just, it took a while to explode. But within five or six years, TaylorMade had become really a significant player in the golf business. Was there controversy at all around it? Like, you know, metal bats in baseball versus wood bats or people, did anybody say, oh, this is cheating. You're not, you're, you're not using wood. Oh, all of that went on. First, you know, you had a, the entire industry was against the metal wood, not because it didn't mm. work, because it would obsolete the entire infrastructure of wow. the industry. Wow. The manufacturing, the sales, the players, wow. the marketing, inventory yeah. in the field. So you yeah. had an, an entire industry that was against the advent of this new product. Uh, it was so far superior, however, that when the tour players started to use it, then all of the amateur golfers said, well, if it's good enough for a tour player, then maybe I should be playing it. 
And hmm. it took a couple of years to have that happen, but within five years, uh, the business was about 50-50, metal woods to wood. Wow. And of course, we had almost all of the market share. And by the end of the decade, by 1990, there was not a wood wood sold. It all went to metal, and we were the leader by wow. a large margin. How did you start to, so you're 20, yeah, I mean, you're 20 or your early 20s. How did you start to make inroads? Would you just start to visit golf shops and golf courses and and golf pros at the clubs and have meetings with them and tell them about this product? So I would get a list of all of the golf courses. And I had a very small territory. I had San Diego County, Riverside County, San Bernardino County, Southern Nevada, and the state of Arizona. So today there's probably six sales reps and I was the one. And I had a list of probably eight or 900 golf courses and I got in my van and I just would drive from one to the next. Because if I called and I said, I work for the TaylorMade Golf Company, could I set up an appointment? The answer was no, or they hung up. Uh, so I would just had to cold call and I would stop in and meet the pro. And I think one of the things that helped Guy was that I was a pretty good player. Yeah. So I played in a lot of tournaments. I could relate. I had a lot of commonality with the club pros because I wanted to be one. So I had a little credibility to be able to tell the story. Because you were using the, the, the clubs when you were playing. Correct. Yep. And I could. And so kind of the key back then was to say, hey, pro, grab your driver, the one that you play. And give me five minutes on the range. Let's walk down to the driving range and you hit your driver and then you hit this metal wood. And, uh-huh. but here's the deal. If you hit it better than your driver, you have to buy some. And if you don't, I'll leave. And <laughs> nine out of 10 times they hit it better than their driver. And nine out yeah. of 10 times I got a sale. So the company was uh, the startup, right? TaylorMade was the startup yeah. that was started in Illinois and it started to grow. And I guess within... A few years, like three years, it was acquired, right? Like I think 1984 was acquired by Salomon Company. Is that Salomon, the company that made the skis? It is. It is. And it's a, it's a really interesting story. First, like most entrepreneurs, the biz, when, when, they, when the company goes faster than the money they have, the capital they have to buy inventory, to hire yeah. people, the company had gone from basically zero to about $25 million. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but this is the golf industry in 1984. The Ben Hogan Company, as an example, was the largest golf club company at $40 million. Wow. So this was a huge, I mean, wow, that was a huge growth for Taylor. It was. And they were out of money. Uh, they weren't. Wow. They didn't file bankruptcy, but they were out of money. And they were out of some, money because they were. They were. They couldn't produce the clubs fast enough to meet demand, and obviously they. They, they, the cash flow, they had a cash flow issue. They, they had a right? cash flow they, issue. Yeah. That's what they, yeah, they had more orders than they needed, but not enough cash to buy inventory and wow. warehousing and logistics and all the things that come with growth. Oh, So Solomon being the, and they're from France, Annecy, France, they said that they had a winter sports company and they were looking for a summer sports company. Mm. So the French, and it's a French company, they bought the company at the, at the end of 1984 uh, and they bought it for the debt. I mean, it was, I'm, I don't exactly know, but That's, it was, they bought it for a million dollars, something like that. They bought that. a distressed company, which was a great brand. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, it was a great brand, but it was distressed and they got it. So the founder really didn't, 
make a whole lot. He did not. He did not make a whole lot. Wow. And I'll tell you the saddest part of the whole story. So in 1984, let's just say we did about $25 million. By 1990, we were doing $300 million. Wow. It was unbelievable. You became the, the VP for sales at the company. It's again, still a pretty young guy, probably in your late 20s, I think, right? I did, yep, 1989. So I would have been 29 years old. I became the VP of sales, yeah. So you worked for Salomon, I think, I think for almost 10 years. And, and then in 1998, uh, you left TaylorMade and Salomon for, uh, for your competitor. You, you were basically poached by Callaway to be their head of sales and marketing. Tell me the, the reason behind that decision to, to go there. Well, two, two reasons for me, Guy. One, the CEO, my boss from 1992 to 1996, was a guy named Chuck Yash. Hmm. And he was the CEO of TaylorMade. He then left in 96 to go over to Callaway. And I loved oh. working for him. We had a great, great working relationship. And he was over there for about a year and a half. And he called and said, hey, um, you know, and at that time, Callaway had just an amazing run in the 90s. And they were almost a billion dollars by the end of the 90s. Wow. And so they were, they were actually kind of beating you guys they were they, they the were so it yeah when when solomon took over the company um not not when they took it over but when they moved the headquarters to france the company really stalled and so hmm. we were 300 million at the beginning of the 90s and we were 300 million at the end of the 90s wow and wow. callaway at the beginning of the 90s was five million dollars and by the end they were 850 million that's yeah. incredible. So my boss, former boss, calls me and says, hey, look, this is, it's a public company. You can make more money. I'd love to work with you again. There's a big opportunity. And yep. uh, I just kind of had enough of the French culture and, you know, having the company being run from many miles away. So I decided to do it. And uh, it yeah. was hard because, you know, I had grown up in the company, but I thought, you know, sure. it's time to do it. Just as an aside, why do you think um, the decision to run the company out of France stalled the growth of TaylorMade? I mean, if it started the '90s at 300 million and ended at 300 million, what 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 were they not doing right? Yeah, it's a great question, Guy. Solomon was trying to use their model they used for the ski industry in the golf industry. So they were kind of a, this is our model. This is how we're going to do it. Well, all the hmm. authentic golf people, or not all, but majority of them left the company. And so all these key positions were now filled with people that came from the ski industry. Right. And they thought the parts were very interchangeable, and they found out that right. they were not. And that's really, that was really the the difference. I mean, it's it's actually an amazing opportunity that you got at the time because you were still young and you didn't go to business school, but here you are living in a, a case study, mm -hmm. like in real time. Yeah. It was really educational for me, like you said, and and I, I didn't go to business school, but I've really spent my lifetime learning by being in the action. And yeah. it, it was yeah. it was really fascinating to watch how Callaway uh, built their business and to watch how we stalled. And when I had, and we'll get to this, but when I had my opportunity uh, a few years later, uh, then I really learned, I, I used what I, I watched and learned during the 90s to help us in the 2000s. Mm. 
I have to assume that at a certain point when you're VP for sales and, and probably going to Callaway, this maybe underscored this idea that in your mind you're thinking, you know, maybe I could be a CEO of a company one day. You know, it's it it's a really interesting topic for me because I remember it's one of the reasons I fell in love with Chuck Yash. I was in my first review with him in 1993, and he said to me, "Now he went to naval. He went to the Naval Academy, Harvard Business School. He worked at Spalding. Uh, he worked at P and G. I mean, he had kind of a classic marketing, you know, big yeah. education, the whole thing, right? And he said, "So, what are your career aspirations?" This is 1993, and I said, "Career aspirations." I work in golf. I sell golf clubs. Uh, this is it for me. I don't really have any aspirations beyond this. And he said to me, and I'll never forget it, and it's one reason why I went to work for him at Callaway. He said, look, yeah, yeah, you're a great sales manager, but I think you have potential beyond that. You could be a general manager. You could run you know, all of the functions, and at some point you could be a president or a CEO. And I said, well, geez, I never thought about that. But he piqued my curiosity, and that's the one reason, uh, one of the reasons why I followed him was to help develop my career as an executive. And he really invested not only his own time to teach me, but to bring in coaches and mentors and things that could really help develop my my skill set to be an effective leader. So I really have him to to credit more than anyone for my career. All right, you get to Callaway and um, as the VP of sales and marketing. But from what I read, it wasn't pretty soon after you got there, it didn't feel like the right fit. What, what do you remember about that time? Uh, honestly, Guy, I was there for a week and I said to myself, I made a mistake. Wow. And it wasn't that the company wasn't great because the company was amazing. Uh, they treated their people well. They they paid more than anyone in the industry. A lot of the, those people during the 90s became very, very wealthy. But for me, what I learned about myself was um, creativity, expression, uh, challenging the status quo, things that I was allowed to do at TaylorMade. You couldn't do that at, at Callaway. Callaway was, hmm. a, the founder was Mr. Ely Callaway, a genius, uh, revolutionized golf in many ways, but it was always going to be his way. Yeah. And there was one experience I'll share with you, and it, it's what made my mind up. We had Chuck Yash, Ely Calloway, and myself went down to see this launch campaign, um, advertising campaign, and we all agreed. We saw f four or five different campaigns. We all agreed on one. We all loved it. And the next day, Chuck calls me in the, his office and says, Ely doesn't like the campaign anymore. And I said, hmm. uh, well, why not? He said, well, it doesn't matter. He doesn't like it, so we need a new one. And I said, well, shouldn't we at least ask him why he doesn't like it, Chuck? <laughs> so we, he organized a lunch, and we went to the Four Seasons in Carlsbad, and Mr. Calloway sits down. He says, okay, Mark, what did you want to talk about? Chuck said, you want to talk about something? I said, well, Ely, it's very simple. Well, actually, it was Mr. Calloway. We all called him Mr. Calloway. Yeah, sure. I said, uh, I said, look, we all loved the campaign yesterday, and today you don't, which is fine, but I was just curious as to why. And he said, and I'll never forget this, he said, do you think you know more about advertising than me? And I said, wow. no. And he said, well, then just find me a new campaign. I no longer like it. And that was the end of the conversation. And, wow. and I knew Guy in, at that moment that they couldn't, all the money in the world wouldn't, that's not the environment that I wanted to work in. Yeah. 
that was a top-down, old-school approach, right? Because I think he was from Georgia, yep. Ely Calloway. Yeah, he yep. was an old s- Southern guy. And yeah. not, not to stereotype, but I mean, he was, he was older. He, yes, he was he 80. Was old he was guy. 80 years yeah. old. Yeah, yeah. And but don't get me wrong. He was a delightful guy. He was a genius. He built an amazing company. It just wasn't for me. You needed the push and the pull and the, and yeah. the, ten- the sort of the creative tension of asking and, and interrogating ideas. Because I guess you expected people to, to do that of you. Yeah. I, I think the other thing is they were so far ahead of everyone in mm. terms of their sales and their dominance. They were a billion. We were 300 million at TaylorMade. I think I also enjoyed the fight a little bit more and to get up every day and as a challenger mindset. Um, I think that was more inspiring to me than how do I manage something that's that's out in front. So, I, I, I mean, I wasn't aware of that at the time. That was an unconscious thought, I think. But I think that was one of the other things. I, I like to be in the fight a little bit more. Which, which makes sense uh, that you're a Packers fan. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. It's funny. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back... Mark King decides, after only 18 months on the job, to leave Callaway. And you may be surprised to hear where he goes next. Stick around. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. 
Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 1999, and Mark King has left his cushy job at Callaway. And where does he land? Back at TaylorMade. You see, both TaylorMade and its parent company, Solomon, had recently been acquired by Adidas, the massive global shoe and sports brand. And Adidas wanted to write the TaylorMade ship, and they wanted a golf guy to lead it. And so they turned to Mark. And I, I'll never forget what I said to him. I said, I'm interested only if I can start tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, uh, wow. And I believe I took a 50% pay cut to go back to TaylorMade, 50%. Um, but it didn't make any difference. It was, you know, I, I missed the brand, but I, I missed the mm. people in the environment guy. That's really what I missed. And and the company was in really bad shape. Callaway was in really great shape. Um, but I, it, it was it was the best decision I ever made in my life. Callaway did not make it easy for you. They threatened to sue you. They threatened to do everything they could to prevent you from from going to work at TaylorMade. Tell me about that time in your life, because I cannot imagine that was pleasant. Oh, it was the worst time. It was the worst six months of my life. They 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 did sue me um, individually on something called the inevitable disclosure doctrine, which goes back to somebody left Coke to go to Pepsi and argued that this person would inevitably disclose the formula for Coca-Cola, and the federal courts upheld it and made the guy, the person, sit on the sidelines for a period of time. So they were arguing that I would inevitably disclose all these secrets that Callaway had. (laughs) The only thing in my favor was the state of California uh, does not recognize the inevitable disclosure doctrine. So after four or five months of going through all of the depositions and this and that, uh, you know, we walked basically mm. to the steps of the courthouse and they basically said, fine, you can go. And the lawsuit was over. Uh, so uh, it was it was a defining moment in my life um, when I decided that if an employee ever wanted to leave a company that I ran because there was a better opportunity for him or her, that I would help them go to that company, not try to destroy their life. And it was it was a big learning for me. It was really nasty. Um, mm. I would say it's one of the two or three things that have kind of not scarred me, guy, but really changed the way I look at certain situations now. And yeah. um, and because it it was it, I wouldn't want anyone to live through the, those four or five months. Were you not able to work at TaylorMade during that time at all? Um, so they, we agreed that I would be blocked out of some discussions, like product discussions, because that was the the main area. They thought I had all these secrets, and they thought I had yeah. the secret formula for their golf ball. And little did they know, I barely graduated from high school. I certainly didn't know the formula <laughs> for the golf ball. <laughs> so, uh, so, but yes, I had to sit on the sidelines in a bunch of product meetings, but I was able to do a lot of things um, that wouldn't, you know, require any information about Callaway. All right. So you move on back to TaylorMade as president for yep. an interim period. And 2002, you become CEO and you take over a company that had really not grown in the 90s at all. So what what was your plan? How, I mean, what... Now it's your, you know, this is your problem. Well, in 2001, 
we weren't really making much headway. And we there was a guy in the company, his name was Robert Erb, and he was he was a lawyer. And he said, look, if we continue to play by the industry rules, um, we're never going to catch up. Callaway's too good. The, the only way we catch up is if they make a mistake. So we have to change the dynamics of the industry. Hmm. So we took a page guy out of the technology space, which is product life cycles back then in golf were about three to five years. And we said, well, why don't we start launching new product every year? Hmm. And because golfers really want new product, they just don't get it every year. So we completely reinvented our supply chain. We beefed up our engineers in the R&D space. We formed a partnership with a company from Taiwan to be the exclusive manufacturer of our Metalwoods irons and putters. And in 2001, we start, we launched a product in the Metalwood space. And then we would, one year later, we'd launch another product and we lowered that price point $100 from $500 <laughs> to $400. And we launched a new one at $500. And then a year later, we launched another one and lowered the, within three years, Guy, we had price points at 200 300 400 and 500 And these were for specific types of clubs? They were just drivers and drivers. fair. Yeah, they were they were the metal woods. They were drivers, three woods, five woods, which represents the largest section, the largest portion category of the equipment. So if you get the metal wood business, you, you could become the big player again. Right. right. Well, everyone thought we were we were nuts because we weren't going to be able to make margin, and we were obsoleting ourselves and. Uh, Typical, and what I learned about industries is that industries have an infrastructure, they have a mindset, they're run by industry vets, and when you when you change the status quo, you can have quantum leaps in in performance, not in years, in literally months. Yeah. And we went from three hundred million to six hundred million by two thousand three. Wow. And by two thousand eight, we were a billion dollars and bigger than Callaway. That's amazing. I mean, this yeah. this idea that there was a myopia in the industry, it is it applies to every single industry, right? Because mm -hmm. what you're describing is, the the idea that you could basically introduce a new product every year was seen as stupid, mm -hmm. and you were undermining yourself, and you're just going to cannibalize your own products, and all those people in the industry who quote unquote know better, that was their mindset. But actually, it's part of that is because it's an echo chamber. Everybody is just talking to everybody else in the industry. That's right. And golf was so slow and so unsophisticated that when we came in and we went from driving 20 miles an hour to 100 miles an hour, no one thought it would work. They thought it was crazy. Um, I didn't have any big background of success as an executive. So they thought I was a cowboy, that I was going to ruin the golf industry. And by 2011, we were $1.8 billion in sales. Incredible. Yeah. It's just you, really you, amazing. You guys also did some unusual things. Like you, you would do product unveils at like in, a, in, in, a, in public, right, in front of hundreds of people. Like Steve Jobs, like, like you know, review, product reveals. We, we, we actually copied Steve Jobs and one, huh. I mean, I, the, the, I, I don't even really like to say this, but, but one um, journalist said Mark King is the Steve Jobs of the golf equipment industry. The difference is Steve Jobs was worth more than we did in revenue. So there was a little difference between me and Steve Jobs. But yeah, we, we took a category and we brought, uh, uh, of, uh, I'm talking golf equipment, and we brought energy and enthusiasm. And I mean, I can remember standing in front of an audience 
audience of 2,000 people holding this drive or saying, you know what's the difference that Taylor made? We give our clubs a heartbeat. And then we had the sound effects where it was boom, 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 boom. And it was, so we just, we, we just had fun and we brought drama. And I, I remember we brought Ed Stack, who's the CEO of Dick's Sporting Goods in. Mm-hmm. And it sure. was right after that movie where the, the guys go to Las Vegas and they all get drunk. Hangover. Uh-huh. Well, anyway, if you remember the scene on the top of the casino where they where they, they form the brotherhood and they cut their fingers and they share blood. So we have the most powerful man in, in sporting goods retail in our office. And I have the knife and I'm slicing my finger and I'm saying, Ed, let's form a brotherhood. Let's do something extraordinary together. And he said, hey, I love you, but I'm not cutting my finger. So, but we just did all these crazy things. And what happened is we attracted great talent, employees. We attracted golf professionals, club pros wanted to be a part of. It was different. It was just so different than the Callaway company, which was what would Mr. Callaway do? And just created this fun, exciting, open, disruptive brand and company and just really did some amazing things. What I'm wondering, Mark, is why weren't you ever scared? of those decisions because you were you were as you say untested you you know you did not have a track record as a CEO um, and you know this could be your downfall this could have been your last job I mean never crossed my mind guy never crossed my mind and I think it mm-hmm. never crossed my mind because one I never did anything for money I mean probably the the dumbest move I ever made was leaving Callaway at their very pinnacle to take a 50% pay cut to go to a brand that was dead, right? And yet I never thought about it that way. I thought, this is how hmm. I want to spend my life. This is how I think. This is how I operate. If if we do the right things, the money will come. And I still operate that way today. I mean, I, I'm hmm. I'm in no fear of losing my job. I'm, I'm just focused on what are the things we have to do to move forward? And I'm Honestly, guys, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work, right? I mean, we had plenty of product launches and things that we did that didn't work, but but I'm just a believer that the world is moving so fast and those who are able to move with it have a chance to succeed. Those who won't, they have no chance to succeed. How did you find and identify the people around you who could help you make this happen? Because I, I don't, for, uh, from from my observations of you, you, you don't strike me in any way as a command and control CEO, that you, you really need people around you to come up with great ideas and then you kind of pave the way for them to, to run. Yeah, I think for me, it's it's the North Star guy. It's the, we have this we had this big aspiration that we were going to be the best performance golf brand, and we were going to be number one in all these categories, and we were going to change the world. And my job was to push people to push boundaries on innovation, on how we market, how we go to market. Uh, I'm I'm less intense today than I was 20 years ago, but. I think intensity from the top sets the tone. And I think people really love to work in an environment where they don't have to worry about making a mistake. Clearly, Adidas, the parent company, was happy with your performance over the – because you were – I mean, you were there a long time. You were CEO 34 years. 14 years, CEO, president, CEO. That's unbelievable. 14 years. years, What CEO is a CEO for 14 years of a company? I think Indranui was a CEO for 12 years of Pepsi, and that's a record. Um, amazing. So they, 
basically in 2014 um, asked you to leave TaylorMade and head up Adidas US, um, mm-hmm. which must have been an exciting opportunity, but probably, probably mixed feelings. You're leaving your family. Oh, guy, I didn't want to do it. I didn't hmm. want to do it because I'll, t- I'll tell you why. Well, one, TaylorMade was my life. I had been there since, you know, other than the one year I was at Callaway, basically was there for 1981 to 2014. And the Adidas brand in the United, as great as the Adidas brand is outside the US, it was it was dead in the US. It yes. had been flat for uh, 20 years, 1996, it was 1.5 billion. And when I went there in 2014, it was 1.5 billion. They wow. had been through 10 presidents in 20 years. Wow. So the life expectancy was two years. They controlled everything very much like Solomon, which is very European-like. They were very centrally controlled out of Germany. The only reason I did it was because the guy that I had worked for for 14 years running TaylorMade, he was the CEO of Adidas the exact same time, he asked me to do it. And he said, Mark, we, you know, we need to fix Adidas North America, and I think you have a chance to do it, and I'll give you more latitude than I gave anyone else, so hmm. I need you to do it. And again, I did I, I honestly, Guy, this was a career-ending move because- yeah. Probably wasn't going to make any more money because I know I worked for the Germans for many years. So it wasn't about money and the chance of success was probably, you know, pretty low. Right. Because Adidas dominates and dominated world soccer, football. Yes. Uh, yes. But in the U.S., I mean, in, certainly in 2014, like when you think about the NBA or or football, like uh, American football, no, I can't even think of an, an athlete identified with Adidas. It's Nike. It was all Nike. Everything was Nike. 2014, Adidas had less than 25 professional athletes in the five major sports. Think about that. Wow, that's that's crazy. They didn't ha- they didn't really have any in the MLS. They and they had none none in the NHL. They had our, they had some in basketball, uh, but none in baseball and none in football. We had we had RG three. We had one one professional football mm-hmm. player, and and he had one good year. Yeah, one good year, and he was out. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're still paying them, but that's another story. <laughs> so what? So what's the playbook you brought with you? I mean, is there you, you take over a company that hadn't grown in at all in the U.S. in, in twenty years? Yeah. Well, here's here's what happened, and it's actually not. So there was some strategy to it, there was some inspiration to it, and there was some luck to it. It's three things, mm-hmm. three elements. So I started in May of 2014, and I went over in September of 2014 after spending the summer flying around and meeting customers and colleges and consumer groups. So I went over and I met with the CEO, his name is Herbert Heiner, still my friend today, love him, and the chairman of the board, and sat in Herbert's office, and I said, there's only a couple things that we have to do to make this potentially work. I don't know that it will, but it's potentially I said, we have to move all of the marketing function, all of the product functions that affect the United States over to Portland. And we have to create what we would call the co-headquarters for Adidas in Portland, Oregon. And they looked at me and they said, well, Mark, we're not going to do that. And I said, well, if you're not going to do it, you're not going to, we have no chance. You've been doing this for 20 years. You ask 10 really smart guys to do this, and each, every time, two years later, you fire them because you do the same thing. We're not winning because the largest sports market in the world 
bike. But 53% of the sports market is in the United States. Hmm. And we don't, we, our headquarters aren't here. Nike is here. Under Armour is here. All the sports brands yeah. that do well, they're here. They're not in Germany. Yeah. They're right. here. So we have to, and I know you don't want to do this. I know it's, it's really contrary to your culture, but if you want to win, you have to move these functions from Germany to Portland. I don't have to run them because when you run a region, you run the business, you don't run the product yeah. creation, but you have to have those people on the same campus with me and with my team so that we can create marketing. So a product marketing and go-to-market strategies together. So they reluctantly said they would. Right. So the first thing we had to do was get closer to the market. The second thing is, guys, we don't have any athletes. So I'm going to yeah. go out and I'm going to sign 500 professional athletes. The first one I signed was Aaron Rodgers. I called my, he was at oh, Nike. Yes. I knew him very well. I said, yeah. Aaron, I want you to come to a deal. He was a big golf guy, tailor-made guy. Yeah. He was up that year. He dropped his contract. He left Nike and he came on. And then we signed Chris Bryant, the baseball player. Mm -hmm. And we started signing all these world-class athletes. We started signing mm -hmm. colleges because Nike had all the colleges. So what we had to do is we had to get embedded in sport in the United States. Yes. So that was the second part. And a third? We got lucky. We signed Kanye West yeah. in 2016. And he comes and he on the Kardashian show wears a pair of shoes called Triple White Ultra Boost. And yep. that product had been around for two years. We were just about ready to take it off the market. It was an amazing product. It was the It the had cushioning. that thick um, cushioning, yes, the, right? That yes. It, it's sole, called yeah. Bo yeah, Boost Technology. The Boost, yeah. Well, it, it turns into the hottest selling shoe in 2016. Mm. Um, wow. Because Kanye West is wearing them on that the Kardashian yep. show on the show and then all kinds of in public. And then in he launches at the end of the year, a product called the um, Yeezys. Yeezys. Yeah. And the Yeezys based on the, the success of the Ultra Boost, it turns into the hottest selling shoe. So now we go have from having no shoes that sell to two of the hottest selling shoes and the brand becomes cool overnight. Yes. Overnight, and you couldn't, and you, and you couldn't get those shoes. You can't get them. Nope, the, the, there's a scarcity. Them. Yeah, right. But it, but it created this brand halo, and we started mm. selling. Retailers put the product in. We had all kinds of athletes in our commercials. So in 2014, we ended the year at 1.5 billion. In 2018, and I left in 2018, we did five billion dollars in revenue. That's insane the 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 kanye story i mean that's a whole separate episode of this show because it's a little bit like michael jordan and nike i mean he mm -hmm. they he helped build nike right when they yep. signed him in 1984 Absolutely. or something yes and there's a there was a guy he was the he when i took the job running the north american market he took the job as chief marketing officer his name is eric lidke became very sure, I know good eric. friends yep. yeah he's a he's a really great guy Yep. Yeah, wonderful guy. Um, he's the one that had the courage to tell Kanye West, hey, you create whatever product you want. We'll give you the creative freedom. And Kanye West was quoted about a year into our deal with him. They asked him, why did he leave Nike to join Adidas? And he said this. It, it was one of the most powerful things. He said, Adidas gives me the ability to breathe. <laughs> they want creators. They want people to come in here and challenge things and create things. They're the creator brand. 
And that moment, everything changed. So there's the luck, right? This, I didn't, I mean, yeah. we could have, we could have moved headquarters. We could have moved, we, we signed an ad agency, 72 and sunny out of LA. All those things were strategic. We never could have counted on the Kanye West phenomenon. Um, and then we did all the right things. We launched the right product. We were closer to the market. We had better athletes. And then we also, I guess there was a fourth thing, guy. We just challenged the people inside. Same thing we did at TaylorMade. I remember it was my first all-employee meeting. I said, look, mm. we've been flat for 20 years. Adidas is this amazing brand outside the U.S. We're going to make it amazing inside the U.S. And we're going to do it together. And we're going to figure out how we come up with bold new ideas to break the industry orthodoxies and do things outside of normal. And we didn't have an athlete that we did the collaboration with, like Jordan. We did Kanye West, mm -hmm. who was a cultural yeah. icon. And yep. so we just started to do all these different things, and it changed the trajectory of the company. It's so interesting because you went from golf to sports apparel, right? Yep. And it's a little bit like – it reminds me of your experience at Salomon where you had – ski executives kind of taking over a golf company and not really understanding it. So how did, how were you able to understand, you know, I, I, one thing, and, and this is going to sound really corny, but it's really true. This is a very true story guy. <laughs> when I was in high school, I was struggling in a class and I went to my mom and I was all depressed and I was all like, mom, I'm so dumb. I don't know how to do this. And she said, look, it, it being smart isn't having the answer. Being smart is to know where to go, to, to, to know where to go to find the answer. Yes. And at TaylorMade, we, we actually had something called the Rita King rule in that you're not paid to have the answer, you're paid to find the answers. <laughs> and I've always had that mentality guide. Like no matter what job I have, whether it was at Adidas or now at Taco Bell, I, you're not paying me because I have the ideas of the next burrito. You're paying me because I'm able to help find the next creative product or advertising yeah. campaign or whatever. And I've just, I've never been command and control manager. I've always been about finding the solution. And I, and I, what I find is when you give people as Kanye said, the ability to breathe or create, um, great things happen. And, yeah. and so I've, everywhere I go, things have gone well because I think it's unlocking human potential that's the key. That's the key. The Rita King rule. Is your mom still around? Is she still alive? No, she passed away right before 9-11. Uh, mm. She had, she, she was four, three or four packs of cigarettes a day. Remember I told you about the piano lessons? Yeah, And sure. she died of lung cancer at 71. But her memory lives on with the Rita King rule. Which the Rita it's not King important rule. you have the answer. It's important you know where to go to find the answer. When we come back in just a moment, another company and another offer, Mark just can't refuse. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. 
in-store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 2018, and Mark King's decided to take a kind of a victory lap. After all, he turned things around for TaylorMade and Adidas, and Mark thought it was time to retire, maybe give some speeches, play some golf. At least that was the plan. I, I started speaking publicly about a decade ago, and I just love to talk about changing the dynamics of a company and leadership and it's no longer command and control and how do you unlock the potential of people so i was going to play golf give a few speeches and enjoy life that's what i was going to do okay that was your plan that's what you would have been doing right now but the plan (laughs) did not go as planned nope um you got a call i guess what in in 2019 from yum brands the, the parent company of taco bell well, actually, I'll tell you how it happened. I was back visiting Ed Stack at Dick's Sporting Goods, mm-hmm. and I'm leaving his office. It's in Pennsylvania? In Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Yep. And Lauren Hobart, who was the president of the company, is now the CEO of the company and on the board of Yum Brands, I might okay. add. She comes running down the hallway, and she says, Mark, Mark, how are you? How's retirement? Blah, blah, blah. And I hadn't seen her in a year or so. And... um I said, oh, God, life is great. She goes, oh, my God, I got a call from Spencer Stewart, and they're looking for a CEO for Taco Bell. And your name popped into my mind. Oh, and Spencer Stewart's, a, which is a recruitment company. Yes. And and the, and so the Sheila O'Grady, the recruiter, said to Lauren, we're looking for a CEO. Hmm. Uh, any ideas? And my guess is they probably were thinking about Lauren. And she said, no, but I have a, the perfect guy for you, Mark King. <laughs> so they call me and uh, this Sheila O'Grady says, hey, are you interested? And I, I basically said, well, thanks for the call, but I don't really even want to meet with you because I know what'll happen. I'll get all excited about it. You'll fall in love with me. And then at the last moment, I'm going to say, I don't want to do this because I don't want to do it. I'm retired. <laughs> I've, I've worked my whole life to be where I'm at. I'm healthy. I'm golfing. I'm Life is great. And it was Taco Bell that she specifically wanted to talk yes, to you about. Yes, okay. and it was specifically the Taco mm-hmm. Bell brand. Right. So anyway, a week later, Sheila drives down to Carlsbad, calls me and says, I'm at the – Starbucks down the street from you. Will you come have a coffee with me? So I did. And she tells me about the job. And I said, okay, well, I'll talk to the the right people. Well, then I start, I talk to my daughter. What do you think about Taco Bell? Oh my God, dad, Taco Bell's the greatest brand in the world. She's a marketer mm-hmm. for a for an eyewear company. She goes, oh my God, that's a cooler brand than Adidas. You, you, you gotta go to Taco Bell. And of course, we're big Taco Bell fans. We eat there all the time, but I didn't really realize the brand was so cool. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Then I start meeting with the people and I love the people. And then I find out more about the brand. And it's this brand based on creativity, breaking the status quo, innovation, kind of a category of one, kind of this license as a brand to do new and cool things. And I get really excited about it. And then in June, I said, yes, I'll become the CEO. And so I started in August of 19. You moved to an entirely different category, brand new learning learning experience at this phase in your career because it's food, it's restaurants, mm-hmm. um, completely different supply chain, completely different uh, business model. So presumably you're spending the first four to six months just trying to understand the business, right? Guy, when I walked in the door the first day and went to the first meeting, um, I'm like, what am I doing here, right? I don't, uh, so it, it was bizarre, but the people here are so nice and they welcome me. And and again, I'm just gonna go back to the Rita King rule, right? It's like, okay, I'm here, I have a role. Uh, I bring a lot of senior leadership. I, I, I know a lot about brands. I, you know, I kind of look the same as the franchisees. And I think that could be a big opportunity for me. I think the executive executive team needed some leadership. It was a, a fairly dysfunctional team at the time to bring some uh, maybe new players in to rebuild the executive team. And uh, so I just going to take it one day at a time and learn. So I just, mm. I'm traveling around, meeting people, learning as much as I can. Well, yep. What's your approach in that situation? You're coming in, there's a, a an executive team, some of whom have been with the company for a long time. You're new. They, they would have read your bio and they, they would have known your record. So, you know, there's obviously... You know, respect for your record, but but it, you're coming into a completely different space, and and I think understandably there might be some skepticism. What's your approach to start to win people over? Well, it's fairly bizarre because the first day I said, look, I'm pretty sure no one here wants me to be here and can't understand why I'm hired. Fortunately for me, I'm the boss. Unfortunately for you, I'm your boss. So we just have to figure out how we're going to do this. And uh, I just said, look, I don't bring a lot of expertise in food or restaurant or whatever, but let me tell you what I do know about, right? I do know about people. I do know about business. I do know about how to be disruptive. And I'll, I will stay in my lane and I'll learn from you and I'll help you develop as executives. And together, we're going to do great things. And it started slowly. So you come, this is really the first time that you are heading up a company that's actually doing well, right? You, you weren't, it wasn't like Adidas, yes. which was in crisis or TaylorMade, which was kind of in crisis. When you got to Taco Bell, it was doing well. And, and so what did you see your sort of, your kind of charge at this point? What, what did you want to to try and accomplish? I wanted to, because I, I could see from the minute I walked in that there was some level of complacency <laughs> with the with the culture because they had like 15 years in a row of same-store sales growth of more than 3% and outpacing industry growth for 15 straight yeah, years. Yeah. And so you start to get more conservative, you start to take less risk, you talk more about the past than you do the future. I mean, every successful company mm-hmm. goes through the sure. same thing. So I, I, I could see that I needed to bring, uh, to re-energize the DNA of the company. Even though they're doing great, I still needed, I thought, to re-energize the DNA, which is about disruption and and big and bold. So you 
start the job in August 2019, and presumably you're traveling around, you're meeting um, franchisees, and, and we should I should point out Taco Bell is a franchise model. So really, the the power centers at Taco Bell are not with corporate; it's with with franchise owners who own 100, 200, 300 Taco Bells, right? Yeah, really. The 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 what what the what the franchisor does is finds new franchisees to build new restaurants because you want to add restaurants every year. And then we create the product, we create the marketing, we create the op standards that allows franchisees to operate really successful businesses. I mean, that's the model. We do own almost 500 ourselves. So we still operate and own own and operate 500. But we have 7,500 restaurants and 7,000 are owned by franchisees. So yeah, it's a different model that I'm used and, to. And a model which means that you are not only running – so you're running a restaurant business and and then you're also running kind of like a – almost like a trade association because you yeah. are – you've got all these constituents who have um, just sort of you know generally similar interests but also diverging interests depending on where they are. So there's a lot of – presumably a lot of like just retail politics that you have to – engage in to, to be successful at that job. Yeah, I think it's it, it's a lot like walking through a minefield because you have hmm. big franchisees that have a set of of things that they need. You've got mom and pop that might have one, two, or three restaurants. Yeah. You've got middle people that so and they all have different needs because of the size of their businesses. So and then to kind of have one blueprint that applies to all is very very tricky, and you have to be able to bring the system along, whether it's new product launches pricing, compliance, all operations, store hours, how you treat employees. Those are all challenges that you have to do by influence more so than mandating when 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 you own all of the the restaurants yourself. So it's it's very challenging, very tricky. So you're spending the first part of your tenure just learning about the business and then early into your tenure p- p- pandemic. Mm-hmm. Like the entire world shuts down and and the you know the the immediate uh re- the repercussions were immediately felt in the in the food and restaurant industry like right away it was a yep i, I have to imagine in march let's say it was march you know i can't remember 11th when yeah i have to imagine that you gathered your team and you were thinking we got to prepare for a, a, a disaster a disastrous year well, honestly, guy, you know, if you remember, the, we were going to be shut down for two weeks. That was the first, yeah. um, you know, it was going to be two weeks, and then by the time we got to April first, you know, there was no there was no reopening in sight, right? So, I would say the first two weeks, okay, we can make it through two weeks, no problem. But once we once it was okay, we're going to extend the shutdown. Then it became very scary. Like, how are we going to survive? And thank God that the governments allowed drive-throughs to to remain open and they allowed what they called essential workers to to work in restaurants uh, because that allowed us to to stay open even though we lost all of the dine-in business still more than 70 percent of our business is drive-through so in in reality we could keep about 70 percent of our of our operation open but anyone who's run a PL knows that when you lose 25, 30% of your top line, your economics no longer work. Yeah. So even though it sounds like, oh, okay, well, you still have 70%, it was still a heck of a challenge right. to be able to stay open. Yeah. So one of the things that you guys were not a leader on was mobile 
right? I mean, you were not really right. in that space at all in March of 2020. Yeah, not at all. We were a very traditional drive-through, ultra-successful business. And, you know, one of the problems with all that success, with not just Taco Bell, but any company in any industry is you don't really want to change your model because it works so well. Correct, right. And so we didn't get into the digital business. We were not really in the app or the loyalty program uh, because we didn't have to be. And then when the world shut down and really those brands that had a one-on-one -on -one connection through their digital apps and through their loyalty programs, they really excelled during those days because that was an e the easiest way to connect. They yeah. could have it delivered, they could pick it up, or they could go through a drive-through. So we had to pivot very quickly uh, and build digital capability and launched an app and a loyalty program all within months, Guy. You had to, I mean, presumably partner with the, you know, the DoorDashes and the Grubhubs and and those those providers right away in a more meaningful yeah. way, I, I have to assume. We actually had we had a, a deal at that time with DoorDash, and we quickly added Grubhub and Uber Eats. But the challenge, and that was, and, and Yum, our parent company, really helped us with those negotiations to get up and running. But it's not as easy as you think because you have to integrate into the, into the software, into the restaurants. You have to be able to have a place where drivers to pick up food. So there was a lot of logistical work we had to do to make that work. So it wasn't just as easy as getting online with, with the aggregators, but it was how do we build an infrastructure to support that business, which was really more more of the challenge from from a from a leadership perspective how did you begin to adapt and lead i mean you 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 were used to being in conference rooms and meeting people face to face and giving them feedback and all of a sudden you're doing this remotely um, this is not a native skill set that you have right because it's not yeah. something that you grew up doing no not at all but I'll, but i'll tell you what happened for me personally it actually accelerated my learning curve hmm. Because as opposed to getting on an airplane on Monday, driving the mar or flying around to a couple cities, meeting two or three franchisees, visiting stores and coming home, I'm now on seven, eight, nine calls on, on teams every single day with different groups that I would never spend any time with because we were we were having to react to everything. How do we create a new menu that works with drive-through only? How do we create a menu for group occasions and delivery? You know, how how are we going to build ads because none of the production facilities were open guy to make new ads. Hmm. So I mean, we were we're having to recreate everything that we did. So in some way for me, even though I was brand new and didn't know anything, at some level, nobody knew anything because we had to recreate everything, not, not from scratch per se, but, but certainly had to recreate things. So for me, living through that first six, eight months of COVID, I met more employees. I learned more about how we do things. I learned more how we had to pivot. Uh, so it was a, an accelerated learning curve for me. So the one positive that COVID brought me is I could talk more uh, intelligently about our business by the end of the summer of 20 than I could have if COVID had not hit. Your 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 predictions were that 2020 was going to be disastrous for the bottom line as, yeah. as most companies, but it turned out to be a record year, I think, right? 
It was. Not by a lot, but yes, it was. Um, and it was for a couple of reasons. So when the world kind of shut down, we gave our franchisees the ability or the option to not serve breakfast. So they didn't have to open at seven o'clock or six. They could open at nine. Right. Late night, which was a good day part for us, but you still have to staff it. We shut that down and we focused on lunch and dinner. And so a lot of the wages went way down. And even though the revenue was down a little bit, it was kind of flat for the year, expenses were down. So profitability was up. So it was actually from a bottom line standpoint, it was a it was a pretty good year for mm. franchisees and restaurant owners of drive-through restaurants. Um he, one of the challenges that faces everybody in the food industry, there's so many, but, but one of them is is staffing, right? Right now it's yeah. really really hard. Um it doesn't matter if you're Starbucks or Chipotle, I think in in, in the Bay Area, San Francisco, I think Chipotle is offering 20 $8 an hour and they and they're still having a challenge challenge time finding people to fill those jobs. What I mean you you are overseeing a franchise business, right? There are there there are stores in every state in in the United States with different yep. local regulations and laws and and minimum wages and there's a lot of talk in in the United States today about living wage. What does that mean? About giving people a pathway to a a, a, a you know, a more meaningful career. Um how, how are you starting to think about that with respect to Taco Bell? Well, let's just take the wage. The wage sure. to me is the easiest conversation because it's supply and demand. And yep. if, if you're attracting a certain worker that's going to work in uh, the restaurant business, you're going to work at Chick-fil-A, you're going to work at Jack in the Box, you're going to work at Taco Bell, KFC, Pizza Hut. And if you're paying $10 an hour and they're all paying 13, nobody's coming to work for you. So yeah. in time, it, it just kind of levels itself off. So whatever the rate is going to be, and in most cases now, it's around $15 and it was around 10 prior to COVID. So it's had a dramatic uptick. But everyone, if you want to open your doors and you want workers, you have to be competitive. And so you have to be at the market rate. What we're trying to do, Guy, is really focus. We're going to, obviously, we those are table stakes is what you pay hourly. The, yeah. the differentiator is the environment. What opportunities do they have to become a restaurant manager? What opportunities do they have to have an education through our Live Moss scholarship, uh, which we, we do hundreds of, of employees every year we can send to college? We're, we have a path to ownership. So, so we're saying, yes, come and work for whatever the, the local rate is, but we have an opportunity for you not to have a job, but to have a career. And I think that's what will attract the more talented people, the people who are really serious about um, a career and not just a part-time job. So we're really excited about these programs that we're offering above and beyond the, the wage rate. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine in the industry, and he, he, he was talking about Chick-fil-A, which is a company I know a lot a lot of quick service restaurants are looking at, the industry looks at Chick, to, to Chick-fil-A as sort of a, a leader yeah. um, in, in, in many ways. And one of the things that they do, I mean, they have certain advantages because they're sort of southern and, and mid-Atlantic, so there are different cost of living um, challenges that those restaurants don't face. Um, but they offer their employees a path. If you get to Chick-fil-A as a cashier and you say, I want to be a manager one day, um, they will help you do that. Yeah. They will they will guide you to to do that, and and it's one of the reasons, from from what I understand, why they have had less of a challenge in 
in recruitment and retention. Is that, is that right? In, yeah, yeah. That, it's for sure right. Starbucks has a program where you can get an undergraduate degree online from Arizona State University as a part-time worker. Yeah. I think as we develop over the years, we'll, we will stand out as, as, as much as Starbucks and today Chick-fil-A are really the, the two leaders. When, when things are going well, and things are going well for Taco Bell, right? I mean, yes. the, these, the average Taco Bell does like over $2 million a year in, in revenue. Um, how, do you, how do you get people to be willing to smash up the model and to, to try things that are totally radical? Well, I think it's hard, number one. Let me just say that. I think it's hard. Um, but, I, but I think you have to be consistent. And the story that I've been telling since I got here, and I'm sticking with it, Guy, is the world is changing rapidly. And you can you, you just go to one industry after another and take an industry leader who got very complacent and really thought that the way they did things was was always going to be the best way. And they wake up one day and their business is not only hurt, but it's gone. And I live in fear that the world's going to change. And it did. It changed during COVID. And it didn't change mm. for the better for Taco Bell. Because we weren't in the digital world. We weren't in yeah. group occasions. We weren't in delivery, right? We weren't in those things. And that's where the world has gone. So now we find ourselves having to pivot quickly or we're going to lose market share. So I just, for me, it's a mindset of if we're not disrupting ourselves, somebody else will. And I, I really believe that. Uh, and there's just too many examples. The best example to me is uh, Yellow Pages, right? And, and this is an old yep. story. But Yellow Pages, they saw the digital world coming. They saw that this big yellow book that it had no future, but they were reluctant to be the ones that obsolete themselves. And, they, you know, they, they were obsoleted. Um, and and I, yeah. that's, that's a story for me that just, it, it's at the top of my mind all the time. Look, my own experience with Callaway in 2002, if you would have said to anybody in the golf industry, in less than 36 months, TaylorMade will be bigger than you and you will be reeling for how you're going to come out of this nosedive, people would have laughed at you. <laughs> 36 months later, we were bigger than them, more profitable than them. And five years after that, we were twice their size. So, And now the pace of that opportunity is even quicker, right? So yeah. what took yeah. 10 years then will take five years now. So, so it is a constant battle to be to be disrupting yourself. It, it sounds like you, um, when when you understand that things are changing all the time, you have to have a healthy fear of failure. In a, in other words, to succeed, you have to be vigilant of the possibility that it can all fail at any point. You know, I read a book once uh, about athletes that. There's only two things that motivate, right? One is success and one is fear. And when you read about mm -hmm. my favorite athlete, um, my favorite football player was Brett Favre, but my favorite athlete mm -hmm. was Wayne Gretzky, you know, who was still to this day, you know, there's Wayne Gretzky and every other great hockey player. Right. Uh, and he was, the only thing that motivated him was the fear that he wouldn't be as good tomorrow as he is today. And to me, that's, I, I, I'm not fearful for myself, but I'm fearful that if we don't continue to, to challenge ourselves, disrupt our own business model, that somebody will. And then, I, you know, I'm responsible for that. So that's what drives me is that, 
incrementally getting better incrementally is no longer good enough in the world we live in it's got to be in these big strokes of breakthrough innovations and technologies and business models and thinking and process and it's just everywhere do you think that you were you were born with skills that enabled you to become a leader or do you think you learned those over the course of your career i i definitely think it's both guy i I, and i'll tell you when i went back to the my Chuck Yash story. That's what he saw in me. It was not a business manager, but a business leader. And he said, I think you have the potential to be a great leader of a company. So I think certainly I was, I had some innate things that, that I had, I was born with, but I've spent my lifetime watching great leaders. Uh, I've worked for great leaders. I'm curious. I want to get better every day. And I think as long as I have that drive, I will. And, and as long as I have that drive, I want to be here. And the day I don't have that is the day that I should be playing golf every day. That's Mark King, CEO of Taco Bell, former CEO of TaylorMade and Adidas North American president. Oh, and you know how Mark's team at Adidas had huge success in teaming up with Kanye West? Well, Mark is taking a similar approach at Taco Bell and has announced a partnership with one of today's biggest musicians, Lil Nas X, who actually worked at a Taco Bell back in the day. So kind of perfect. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions.